Surround yourself with success. Welcome to the Wealth Matters Podcast, where investors come together to better understand how to build passive cash flow and create generational wealth without all the confusing mumbo jumbo. Here's your host and co-author of Amazon number one bestseller, Alpesh Pamar. Welcome to Wealth Matters Podcast. I have with me my good friend, Brian T. Bradley. is a leading educator and nationally recognized asset protection attorney uh, for high-risk professionals, entrepreneurs, real estate investors, and ultra-high net worth families. Brian's goal is to give you peace of mind knowing your assets are safe. Welcome, Brian. Nah, thanks, Alpesh, for having me on. You know, it's an important topic, and we're definitely going to be blowing up a lot of the status quo and misconceptions for everybody there. Oh, then that's what I'm looking forward to because I uh, am a real estate investor. As you know, I have my own business as well, um, entrepreneur, uh, you know, of course, a lot of failed businesses, but I always talk about asset protection. And on top of that, I'm living in California, which is the most litigious state in the country. Right. Uh, and then, you know, I have had a lot of uh, different attorneys on the podcast talking from and of course, we'll we'll dig deep on those strategies as well. But tell us something interesting about yourself, which we cannot guess. Yeah. So one good one, one fun one that, you know, I just got selected to best attorney of America this year. So that's pretty, pretty exciting. But one that you wouldn't guess is I like to compete in Ironman races. Um, and those are no. races. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. So those are for your listeners who don't really know what that is. That's a race that's 140.6 miles long in one day and it's yes. broken up into a 2.4 mile um, swim, a 112 mile bike ride, and then a full marathon. And so like, I always believe you have to keep, you know, growing and changing mind, body, and soul. So I'm just a big believer that, you know, if you're not growing, you're dying. So did you watch that uh, documentary on Iron Man, the, the 52 Iron Man in 52 yeah. days? Yeah. yeah, 52. Yeah, that was crazy. Yeah, that was crazy. But, you know, it's a whole nother story how I got into this. Right, right. Yeah, and, and, and we can talk about it later because I, I don't know if I ever told you that I'm into races as well. I do Spartan okay. and Tough Mudders. Nice. Uh, you can't tell. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's why I, have, I always have respect for people who do this thing, right? It's not, it's not a joke, right? I mean, it's, yeah. Because we are passionate about it. We, we want to compete. We, we, we enjoy, right? So there it are is. lots of... Yeah, and it ties in with investing, I think, a lot because... Oh, you, yes. You're, you're there doing it yourself. You're in your mind, you know, for especially in an Ironman. It's a whole day thing. And you're training yes. a year for this stuff. And so you got a lot of time to, to focus on goals and how to, you know, close gaps of where you're at and what you want right, to do. And, right. and it's that competitive nature but you're competing against yourself. So yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. And, and, and uh, I keep talking about, I was interviewed on another podcast this week and, and the whole part of the podcast was that we spoke about, you know, the triangle, which I call it as triangle is the mental health, the physical health and the financial health. 
you yeah. can't you can't you have to have all three of those together Absolutely. you can't have just financial health or physical health and not have the other stuff, right? So no, you absolutely can't. You know, like even just your diet and the food that you put in yes. your body, you know, affects your energy level, which will yes. affect your brain functioning, which will affect the way you talk. Maybe a client calls or a deal's coming. Yeah, and yeah. Bad food and your mind's all, you know, your mental state's not managed right, and you can't yeah. get yourself into, you know, your mental exactly. state. Yeah. The the diet, the you know, meditation, yoga. Yep. Every day, every day working out. When I tell someone, they're like, how Absolute, can you do absolutely. all of that in a day? Yeah. I'm like, I have to plan my day. I have, have to make to. up early. <laughs> Organ organization. And, you know, like I always like the Arnold Schwarzenegger principle is, you know, like you sleep six hours a day. If you need more sleep, just sleep faster. But yeah. then there's a lot of time throughout the rest of the day to get everything done. Just, oh, you know, that's, that's yeah. great. Yeah. Let, let's talk about this after the podcast too, because yeah. I, I was planning to do my first light triathlon this year yeah. and all this COVID thing all messed this, me up. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'll have to get back next year. Definitely. <laughs> I, I got some, I've got some good tips for you and help coach oh, you up as you go along. That would be great, man. Yeah. So uh, do you personally invest? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, I invest differently. Um, I, I'm a well, I, I really believe in being a diversified investor. So I like stocks. I like real estate. I like gold and art, you know, and investment watches, but then I also diversify out from there and diversify out my stocks. And, you know, like, I never want to be overexposed in one, in any area. Right. And then I tend to, my mindset is always, I just reversed invest, you know, so people tend to panic and emotionally invest and so those are my best like right now my best offer buying time right now like what was the first thing i did this morning oh stocks down right now people are emotionally selling and concerned what did i do i went in and bought you know and then the, the, so i just do reverse emotional investing got it and i like makes, to invest make sense with, you know yeah, and there is a greed right right that's what yeah. warren buffett say when there is blood in the street <laughs> you got that's to the best time to make <laughs> yeah and then i do a lot of investing through my self-directed 401k that's awesome so let, let's talk about asset protection and, yeah. and whenever i mention asset protection or even personally when i was learning as well I always thought LLC is the main thing, right? You got to have the LLCs, uh, you know, the, every property, put every property in its own LLC and you are good. And if, if you are in California, you don't want to pay that $800 franchise fee, then you may look into DST uh, as well. So why, because uh, when I was talking to you, you said that LLC, DST, they don't work. Why, why do you think so? Or can yeah. you elaborate? Yeah, I'm gonna, I'll break it down. I'm going to break it down a lot. I think for your listeners, you know, like the, the first place to start is just understanding like what is even really asset protection at its base level, you know, and it's not traditional estate planning. It's modern estate planning. And what we're doing is creating legal barriers between your assets and your potential creditor before it's needed. You know, like that's it. It's just a barrier, like a safe um, for your gold or your guns or other valuables and anything of value you want to put behind the legal barrier and out of your personal name so that it's not easily attached with the lien or reached. Um, so now that we understand what it is that we're trying to do to get to the LLCs and DSTs and specifically, you know, with your, your situation and some of your listeners as California residents, it gets tricky. Um, everything has its place. So it's not that they don't work. It's better than nothing. You know, like there is a foundational level. If you're going to just starting out, um, 
start with an LLC, you know, like I'd rather have you have the assets out of your personal name, right. um, but they're entry level asset protection. And you just have to then understand the strengths and weaknesses and then how to properly use and combine all the different tools. So when it comes to asset protection, we have different layers. So, you know, like I'm from the mountains, I'm from Lake Tahoe. Um, when it gets, you know, we get lots of snow there. You know, I also lived in Michigan. It's freezing cold there. So we learn how to dress in layers. The first layer is your base layer and it's generally going to be made from merino wool and it sits on your skin. Then you, you know, want a mid layer, which is usually a little bit thicker and it can be made out of like synthetics or wool. And then you want an outer shell waterproof layer. And this is going to keep you nice and dry and warm when the weather is really cold and bad. But by layering, you're now going to be more flexible. And when it gets hot and you're skiing and you know, you're ice fishing, you can take the outer layer off. You can take the inner layer off or the middle layer. You can adjust and make yourself more comfortable. And the same thing applies with your asset protection. The base layer is your LLC. And it's going to be holding, for example, your risky assets and your real estate. The mid layer is your holding an operating company. And then the outer layer is going to be your asset protection or like a bridge trust. Um, the problem with LLCs generally is that, you know, most clients come to me with 15 LLCs and they're all single member LLCs and they're all in the client's personal name. And this is a problem, you know, and because courts have a tendency now, especially now and in California to disregard single member LLCs they are basically worthless. The veils are really easily being pierced. And when a veil is pierced, you're going to be held personally liable for the assets. So, let, let me ask you this question, right? Because as, as real estate investor, of course, we, uh, you know, um, and again, I'm just going to take an example. Let's say I have a property in Dallas, Texas. I created an LLC called TX Property LLC. And um, uh, it's only uh, the member, uh, it's, a, it's a manager managed company. Member is, you know, myself or my living trust and I'm the manager. Would that, so if, if, if member, sorry, member is my living trust and I'm the manager, would that be a single member LLC? So what you, as a California resident, whatever company that you create, or if you have an asset, you want it to be in the state where that asset is going to be at. Right. So LLC, it's good to have, if you're going to have an LLC, like have a multi-member LLC at least, because then okay. if it's sued personally, you can't affect the ownership asset of another member without their permission. So it at least makes it harder and protects some more assets than just having a single member LLC. So at least it's a better version of an LLC. Um, what you really want is a single member LLC that's going to be holding your real estate to then actually be held and owned by a multi-member limited partnership, not you. Okay. Um, and so by doing this, what you're now doing is properly layering your protection. Um, Got and it. then, so, uh, so sorry to interrupt because yeah. I, I want to harp on the LLC yeah. part. So when you say, so if my trust is only the, uh, the only member in the LLC, that's a single member LLC, but let's say, uh, instead of that, I put my wife and myself as member, would that be a uh, multi-member LLC or? Multi-member, yeah. You're, okay. you're Even though it's my, it's my spouse and I. Yeah, because it's okay. two members and you, can, you both can be operating, you know, members off of it, even though it's a spouse and you're one, you know, married okay. couple, but you're still, you know, multi-membering it. Up okay, here, so, and this is just my thought because I wanted to make sure if some people already have LLCs, right? At least they can make simple change to yeah. see if, you know, uh, they can make it a little bit better, right? Yeah, of course, it's... <laughs> yeah. So lowest, lowest level of an LLC is a single member LLC. Right. Uh, if you're going to want to use an LLC, you know, if still as a foundational piece, at least make it a multi-member LLC. It's a little bit better. 
Um, and then if you want to, as you stage up, the next stage is don't have yourselves as the members of the LLC. You want a second layer limited partnership that actually is the managing member of that LLC and owns and, it. And that's the strategy we are going to talk about, right? And we're going to break that down. Yeah. Later. Yeah. So, so that, that is like, I was going to ask you about that, how to properly layer our asset protection plan. So is that the layering strategy? That would be the next layering, but I still okay. want to get into more of, you know, the question of, you know, what's the weaknesses of okay. LLCs because there's still more and, and there's a lot, they're really big misconceptions that people are getting, you know, bad advice from CPAs or, you know, just chop, chop law firms that are just trying to sell you a product without diving into who you are. Um, the next big issue we find with um, LLCs that, you know, cause a lot of confusion are just where to even set these LLCs up in, you know, do you go to Delaware or Wyoming, Texas, Nevada, right. you know? and then you hear about every states. company sells, you know, one yeah. particular state, wherever they're located, they're like, Arizona is best. Nevada is the best, right? Wyoming. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, and you hear about these states, you know, Delaware, Wyoming, Texas, and, you know, they're really good about protecting their LLC members, like charging orders. And some of these states have privacy, like Delaware and Wyoming. So people say like, oh, it's better to do that. So I'm just going to go and do that. Well, you know, it really comes down to an issue of just what are you holding and where are you owning it at? So let's say, for example, it's like, you know, California real estate, then you're, you, you own, and then you go up and create a Wyoming LLC because somebody on the internet or we get it a lot, a CPA told you that it was better. Or even right. worse, your CPA told you to set up an S-corp to hold real estate at, you know, in. And then you go and you hold a key piece of California real estate in it, you know, in that Wyoming LLC. And now you're paying California franchise tax on it. Um, you've just converted your Wyoming LLC to a California LLC because you're doing business in the state of California and you're paying franchise tax in the California. You're probably a resident of the state of California. Right. Um, if you get sued, you know, you're going to get sued through that state in California. Um, Calif you know, a judge in California is not going to care that you have a California piece of asset held in a Wyoming or Delaware LLC, but right. they're going to look at it and laugh at you if you're going to try to apply another state laws from, you know, injuries and torts and damages because that asset is in California, that lawsuit's coming through California, California law is going to apply to that lawsuit. So we just prefer to use the, you know, an LLC in the state that the asset's actually in, because that's where the lawsuit's coming from. And it just, the optics of it look better. Um, does that make sense so far? No, yeah, it does. Yeah, it just keeps it simple. Then another big you know, question that I get from you know, clients calling in is kind of the new darling on scene, the series LLC. Yes. Um, and the big misconception when it comes to series LLC, you know, the issue is that they're very young. They don't have any case law to rely on. And only a few states actually have series LLC. They don't, yeah, most of the states don't recognize series LLC. Exactly. California is one of them. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to pick on California a lot. Yeah, you got to. I'm here yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. And so what this means is that, you know, if you're living in a state like California that doesn't recognize series LLCs, you know, you won't get the benefit that's intended of them. So you just spent money on something that's not going to actually work how you intended it to right. later on. And then you're still going to be paying the franchise tax per each child series LLC. But then when you get sued, the courts won't recognize those children LLCs. Got it. What yeah. about DSTs? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. 
Because they talk same. about, yeah, instead of yeah, CDs, LLC, use DST. Yeah, it's the same, with, same, same argument. I'll break that down. The, the last misconception with LLCs I want to get into is this whole, you know, misconception of anonymity. Oh, yes. Yeah. And so this is, you know, with people like, oh, I'm going to create a Wyoming LLC because I want to be anonymous. And the basic thought is that you can just create an anonymous LLC where you're at. And, you know, the LLC member's name is not going to be available to the public. And then, you know, if you do get sued, you can just completely avoid a lawsuit and just disappear. And that's just completely false. Um, when your LLC is sued, you're going to be held, you know, and legally required to appear and defend it. You know, then the complaint is just simply going to be amended in your name personally. Uh, with the Wyoming or Delaware LLC, you're going to have to have a registered agent. Their sole job is to provide you service when you're sued. And so they will get the document saying, hey, congratulations, you're being sued. And then they're going to say, hey, congratulations, here's your document and service. Now you got to go find a lawyer and go to court. And what's even worse is that if you want secrecy to even work, this is known as lying under oath. And so right. that's just a one oh, yeah, way to yeah. to jail. And so an example of right. this is that, you know, it, very shortly after a judgment is entered against, you know, you, the creditor, the person suing you have the legal right to demand information about the assets you own. And the courts enforce this very strictly and very, and they have very broad ways of doing it. So at that point in litigation, the only way to keep an asset anonymous when they say, hey, identify all the assets you own, you know, for secrecy is to lie about them and commit perjury. So we don't advocate for that. We don't advocate no, for hiding. No. We just prefer <laughs> to have full disclosure. And so, you know, let me just jump into the DST. You know, this is known as a Delaware statutory trust. As it relates to real estate investors, you know, you hear about them really, we use them more for just as a tax strategy um, to not pay an $800 franchise tax per LLC in California. Because a lot of Californians, Californians like the idea of a series LLC, but they know there's no um, statutory recognition of it. So then the next right. way to kind of create a similar product of a series LLC is through a DST. And I was actually just talking about this the other day with one of my CPA guys, um, you know, who are, you know, CPAs for investors. And most people using a Delaware statutory trust overpay an annual maintenance cost and they lose money because of it. And so it's just an expensive version of, you know, of an asset protection plan that doesn't really offer um, much more protection other than an LLC. And is very limited in what you can actually use it for. There's a lot of restrictions. And then you need an additional side operating LLC since you can't operate out of the DST. Um, otherwise, you're going right. to do tax classification as a business trust. So you're going to be spending a lot of money and have a lot of restrictions for something that has no more protection than just a standard LLC. And you're going to be fee heavy and bleeding money. So the clients really just need to decide, do you care more about franchise tax or do you actually care more about asset protection? And then that should be the guiding decision. If you only nice. care about franchise tax and not paying the $800 franchise tax, go to the DST. If you care about asset protection and want something that works, you know, especially in court when all hell breaks loose, I'd go and lean towards an asset protection trust, like a bridge trust, especially if you're a California resident. So no, that, that's awesome. Uh, another thing we did not talk about and a lot of people bring to me is the land trust. Yeah. Right. Oh, I'm going to anonymize myself by using land trust with LLC. How uh, do those work? Yeah. Um, it, it, it's the way that if you're concerned about transferring your real estate, you know, your investment real estate, 
into an LLC and you're concerned about the note being called due, like land trusts don't have any protection. It's just a trust to hold something. The protection right. comes from the LLC, you know, in its limited form. Um, but if a client is concerned about but the note being called due for transferring out of your name into the LLC, you put the asset into the land uh, trust and then you just connect it to the LLC. Okay. Um, realistically, after over, you know, 30 years of, you know, doing this with my partner and having like, you know, over 3000 clients, we protect over 5 billion worth of real estate assets. I, we've never had a note do, called yeah, due yeah. So, like, uh, of transferring it into an LLC. Um, the only time great, ever, great point. Because yeah. I, I, I work with uh, three of the mortgage originator. One, of, one guy has been in the industry for 40 years and yeah. the other two are 30 plus years as well. And they said they have not heard a single case where the not was, note was being called due because yeah. it was transferred. Yeah, if you stop paying and they find out that you put it under LLC, that's a different story. But if you pay on time, um, they're not going to rock they the boat. Care. They don't care, right? Why would exactly. you <laughs> bother? And that, that was going to be my exact point is unless you're not paying your mortgage, they're not going to rock the boat. Right. And so <laughs> you know, it, it's not really, you're just paying extra money for something that I, right. I find not going to add any more protection for you. And then when you outgrow that, I'm going to have to get rid of it anyways. I see. So you mentioned bridge trust. trust. What is it? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a, advanced form of asset protection. Um, and it's a great question. And there's a lot of ways to skin a cat. And I'm going to want to talk about what a bridge trust is through the eyes of jurisdiction. Okay. And so what jurisdiction means and why it's so important is that the laws and rules that govern you and trust and business entities, they're different from one jurisdiction to another. That means from one county to another, one state to another, and one right. to another. So that this is why we choose, or, or sometimes that's what people recommend Arizona, Wyoming, because they all have different jurisdiction. Right? Correct. And the difference with that, I'll, I'll talk about that domestic stuff a little bit later and why it's weaker. Um, but um, you have two options when you create an, an asset protection trust. You can create them domestically, meaning here in the U.S., or you can set them up offshore in another country like the Cook Islands. Or there's a third option, which is a hybrid called a bridge trust that combines. Uh, okay. All so, right. so now we are talking about debt, right? Uh, domestic asset protection trust and one which is in foreign and the, and you are talking about bridging both of them. Correct. And so we're bridging the two together. And so for a little historical context for your listeners, the offshore trust came first. It was created in 1984 in the famous oh, okay. islands. Yeah. So they're actually the, this is where the, the asset protection trust came from domestic, it came from the Cook Islands, 1984. They were the ones that created it. I personally prefer the power of going offshore if and when it's needed because it's just the best home court advantage. And the power that comes from a foreign offshore trust is it has what's called statutory non-recognition. Um, it's just a fancy word of saying we don't care about any court order or judgment in the world. They don't work here. And that's why it's still the global gold standard even after 40 years of being in existence. Um, it just means that I, any U.S. judgment or court order is completely worthless in the Cook Islands. You'd have to start your case all over from scratch, facing the highest legal standard in the world, the murder standard beyond a reasonable doubt. The person suing you has to front all the court costs, plus flying a judge from New Zealand. You can't take your U.S. attorneys there with you. You can't use in a contingency fee attorney. And if you lose, you pay. 
There's only a one-year statute of limitations to get a lawsuit filed there. So by the time they even recognize that the assets are now over there and that um, they have to sue you there, it's already most likely ran. So, so one thing you mentioned and which caught my attention is that you, you pay when you lose. That, that does not, if I'm correct, that's not how we work in the U.S. That's not right? how we work in the U.S. Yeah, and that's one of the problems of predatory lawsuits and contingency fee-based attorneys is it doesn't cost much for somebody to just say, hey, I want to find a rich investor and I'm going to right. file a lawsuit and take advantage of you. Because if they lose, they'll skin in the game. Yeah. So it doesn't cost them anything, but it costs you a lot of money to pay oh, the attorney yes. fees to defend it, plus the settlement. To yeah, make you guys are expensive, man. 400, 500 bucks an hour, maybe more. <laughs> more like, when I, you know, like when I do try like, you know, top 100 high stake litigators here, like I'm 650 before yes. I even go to court. That's yeah, just from yeah. litigation. If I actually have to go to court, you know, it's like a thousand dollars. That thousand, yes. Yeah. That, that I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so, um, but for a lot of people to be purely foreign in a, you know, a purely foreign um, asset protection trust, not everybody needs that level of protection. You know, for most people it's overkill. And honestly, a purely foreign asset protection trust is just a hard pill to swallow for people domestically. So what we start seeing is a lot of people um, that don't want to deal with the costs and the extra IRS hurdles and disclosures. They just settle for a purely domestic asset protection trust. The domestic trust came 10 years later after the Cook Islands and it started of all places in Alaska. And they actually brought the creators of the Cook Island Asset Protection Trust at Southpac to the U.S. to help create the statutes. Oh. And then not to be outdone, you have, you know, like Wyoming, Delaware, Nevada, they had to follow suit. And so now there's about 20 states with domestic asset protection statutes. But the problem with purely domestic asset protection trusts and why they fail on, is on effectiveness. And that's because of the U.S. Constitution and the full faith and credit clause. Every state has to give full faith and credit to every other state's court orders and judgments. So unless you have something in your back pocket that is an offshore jurisdiction to use, you can't just say, well, hey, I don't want to recognize that other state's order against me too bad. You can't do that in the U.S., and then we have states like California that don't have asset protection statutes, self-settled spendthrift statutes is what it's called. So then you have California residents going to states like Nevada and creating what's right. called an out-of-state asset protection trust. The problem with that is uh, there's a case, Kilker versus Stillman, 2012. They came down and said, hey, we, we understand that you're a California resident, but you're using a Nevada asset protection trust. And guess what? You're not a Nevada resident. So we're not going to recognize it and we're going to pierce that protection system and you're still going to have to open up your assets to the creditor suing you too bad. And that case was upheld by the court of appeals. And so I don't, you know, I prefer a bridge trust. It's a hybrid of a domestic and a foreign asset protection trust because of just these bad case laws. I don't really like anything purely domestic. I like having strength and power and leverage in my back pocket if, and when I need it. Um, what you're doing with the bridge trust is just combining the best of both worlds. It's a fully registered foreign Cook Island trust from day one. It's registered offshore when we create it. Um, but the IRS, the kicker is the IRS classifies the trust as a domestic trust because we keep it in compliance with USC section 7701. I see. So what it does is it makes the trust cheaper to create on the upfront. It's more flexible. Mm -hmm. You don't have any of the annoying IRS compliance and disclosures, and you really don't have any additional IRS tax filings at all, since it's just a domestic grantors trust, but you get the power of offshore when you need it. 
And so the way the layering goes, because I know I went over a lot is you start at the bottom layer, your LLCs. Uh-huh. Those LLCs should be owned by your asset management limited partnership. Okay. You would be the managing member on the general partner side of that management company. And then your bridge trust, your asset protection trust would then own that management company okay. on the limited partnership side. You would be the beneficiary creator of that trust because they're self-settled. And now you have a very strong three-tiered layer of protection. And I then see. if you ever need, if you ever are facing your doomsday scenario or a really big lawsuit, we drop domestic compliance. You're now purely a foreign Cook Island asset protection trust. Interesting. So I have an LLC and LLC is owned by a, a limited liability partnership. And then uh, the LLP is now, you know, part of the trust, right? Which is Correct. domestic. Okay. So let's say someone gets sued. Uh, what so do they reach out to you and you say, okay, now we are dropping and wanting into it into a foreign asset protection trust. Correct. So it already is a foreign asset okay. protection trust. You know, it's just classified by the IRS domestically because we maintain compliance with section 7701. I see. So so it's, it's, me, okay. Good. Yeah, so if you call me and say, Hey, Brian, like I'm getting sued, like this is a bad situation. I've calmed you down nine times out of 10. It's not as bad as it seems. You know, it's, it's like you going into a you know, property, you're going to buy to flip it. I'm going to see a nightmare. You're going to see money. <laughs> I look at liability and lawsuits and say, it's not as bad as you think it is. Like, let's just tap the brakes, calm you down. Right. N- nine times out of 10, the system itself we create, will just tell the other party, this is what we have. This is what we created. If you don't go away, I'm going to drop the domestic compliance, taking all the equity overseas, you know, into the domestic asset protection, you know, the, the foreign portion of the trust. Um, nine times out of 10, they go away. I see. Because they're smart. Like a law firms are going to go out of business to try to sue you for assets they won't collect on. The way that would work is we drop the domestic compliance. You're dropped off as the main trustee. The offshore trustee steps into the place. Your trust protector looks over the trust, you know, the offshore trustee. We then would have to create a like a foreign bank account in like Switzerland, Uzbekistan, Australia. Um, and then that would be connected to the bridge trust your assets and your equity would then be taken into the foreign bank account, which is controlled by the Cook Island Trust. And from there, all your assets are safe until we force a settlement, generally pennies on the dollar. I see. So basically the bridge trust, once you convert it as, uh, or not convert it, but once you remove the compliance, it becomes a foreign trust. Can you go back as domestic trust or it always is as now foreign? Yeah, and we would just reinstate you as the main trustee and the domestic okay. situs of the state that we created that in. Um, and then it's back to domestic. But honestly, most of the clients, if we ever do have to, you know, drop the, the domestic compliance, they actually like the functioning of the foreign trust a lot better. Um, it's yeah. cleaner, easier to use. Um, and they actually generally choose not to come back and bring it, you know, the domestic compliance back. Okay. So, uh, no, that's great. So, but let's talk about some cons, right? So when you have a foreign asset protection trust, now that it's converted, I think you may have to uh, do a FATCA compliance because I I do have some international exposure. So I know I have to. That's why we don't want you to be foreign until you be foreign. So that's why the bridge trust is better to where I can be foreign, but I don't have to be. So then if you, if you were purely foreign, you would have the additional IRS compliance, you know, and you'd have to make your asset disclosures. Um, and then it's going to cost more in maintenance. Um, so you, like, like I said, like you don't want to be foreign until you need to be foreign, but you do want to have that tool in the toolbox in your back pocket 
especially if you're protecting a, you know, 1 million net or more. Got it. And the Foreign Asset Protection Trust uh, at, in Cook's Island, is that only available for U.S. citizens or any, uh, anyone who resides in U.S.? Anyone in the world can use it. Oh, anyone in the world can yeah. use it. Okay. So it's not specific to U.S. citizens or, you know, okay. No. Makes it easier then. Uh, when you say the compliance requirements for foreign asset protection trust, the cost, et cetera, do I have to move my assets in a, in a foreign bank account in Cooksa, everything? Eventually, uh, not, not in the initial spot while you're, there's no lawsuit and you're okay. domestic. Um, so you don't need to pay that extra cost of having a foreign bank account. So there's no point of having that if you're not gonna use it. So there's right. no cost. And if you are being sued, there's plenty of time for us to set that up in the meantime during that lawsuit. Um, but if we did have to, if I'm going to trigger the bridge and cross the bridge and drop the domestic compliance, we're going to be going that route because then there's no reason for me to be going that extreme for you. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, because then there's a liable, you know, strong threat already. So I we would be dropping the domestic compliance and then creating the offshore, you know, Switzerland bank account and then connecting that to the bridge trust and then taking all the equity out of your property and putting it in to be nice and safe in the Swiss bank account with the, Brit with the Cook Island Trust. Because at that standpoint, there's no reason not to. Got it. Makes sense. So one more question I have, it's regarding the primary residence, right? So yeah, uh, yeah we talk, spoke about investment, you know, all my investment stocks to, you know, could be life insurance to, you know, real estate. But what, uh, and a lot of people forget that your primary residence and especially living in a, you know, California or Washington or New York, they are, they cost pretty penny, right? So, yeah. you know, how do you protect them? You know, I, I speak with people and they say, oh yeah, homestead, but the California homestead exemption is like 100K. It's not like, nothing. yeah, not even pennies on the dollar. <laughs> so would... Uh, so a lot of people talk about putting your uh, primary residence into uh, LLC, that wouldn't work. Then, you know, using equity stripping uh, a method as well. Uh, would this work for primary residence as well? This works for primary residence because you're just transferring your red personal residence directly into the trust. Okay. So there's, and with the St. Germain's Act that protects you transferring your residence into any type of trust. It would just be like transferring it into your revocable living trust. Same, okay. princi same principle along. So you're not gonna avoid that with a $250,000 tax credit or benefit. Um, you right, still get yeah, that's another, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that I was going to go there. <laughs> if you were to put it into an LLC, then you're going to be voiding that, yes, that credit. Exactly. Um, the, the one caveat would be, I think you can then transfer it out and back, but then it has to be out, I think for five years. Uh, Okay. So basically then uh, I don't have to put it in an LLC or limited liability partnership. It directly goes into trust. Oh, directly into the trust. Okay. Correct. So I, I have a revocable living trust already. So do I move that living trust itself into the uh, asset protection trust or? No, we would just reference it into the trust and that's where your beneficiaries would be named. You know, like when you do pass and something would happen, it would just be the directives would follow per the status, status and state of the revocable living trust okay. and your medical directives would be in that and your financial directives. Yep. Yep. Awesome. No, this, this was great. This was really helpful. Any other cons of, uh, you know, breach trust or foreign asset protection trust? 
Um, no, I, I think we've gone over the cons of the purely foreign and then the cons of the purely domestic. And then um, that's why the third option, the hybrid, I tend to find to be the, the sweet zone for most clients because it gets rid of the cons of the purely domestic because you get the offshore component and then it takes away the cons of the purely foreign with the cost and IRS disclosures um, because it's classified domestically. Awesome. Let's take a quick break, Brian. You're listening to the Wealth Matters Podcast. The Wealth Matters Podcast. For more info about what we do, check us out at wealthmatters.com. It's wealth, W-E-A-L-T-H, matters, M-A-T-R-S, dot com. Welcome back to Wealth Matters Podcast. I was chatting with Brian Bradley about asset protection and why using a bridge trust makes so much more sense. Uh, Brian, are you ready for five round? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, let's go. Would you be changing any business or investment strategy after coronavirus? No, not as of yet. Um, at least I'm not, no. I, I'm taking advantage of the ups and downs of the stock market right now and then just letting everything else flush itself out. Awesome. Favorite real estate or finance or any other related book? It could be an asset protection book. Yeah, I like the banker's code because it matches with my, you know, investment strategy of being more like a bank and then the alchemist. Oh, alchemist is great. Yeah, yeah. no, uh, no doubt. I got to order banker's code then. <laughs> <laughs> Any tool or website you recommend or you can't live without? Yeah, I like bigger pockets um, for real estate investors, for stocks. I like the Oxford Club. And then, you know, for asset protection, I like my website. You know, the whole reason that we created our, you know, my website, how it is, was as an educational resource. And there's a great legal resource and media outlet. Um, and then a lot of frequently asked questions for people to just go through and educate themselves on. Got it. Any advice for beginner investors? Yeah, surround yourself with success. You know, and I like to use this story as an example. So there's this championship winning corn farmer. You know, he's won the annual corn stock championship every year for decades. You know, he just grows the best and strongest corn plants every year, year after year. So after his last championship, there was a journalist there who walked up to the corn farmer and asked like, hey, how is it that every year, you know, decade after decade, you constantly win? And the farmer told her, you know, the answer is really easy. Every year, I always give the surrounding corn farmers around my farm the seed lead droppings from last year's championship stock. So that way... <laughs> Yeah, that way my cornfield's always surrounded by last year's champions. Right. And so the only pollen that ever blows across my field to pollinate my corn is last year's champions. And so his corn is only surrounded and pollinated when the wind blows by champions. And so my question to your listeners is, it's like, who do you surround yourself with professionally and personally? That's a, that's a great example and advice. How do you give back? No, that's a great question. Um, it's one of the six rules of success. Like I think you always have to give back. And so yes. what I do is I represent a few clients to let cases pro bono, generally cases that no other firm is going to take or, you know, public policy. Oh, wow. okay. And, um, and then I also like to uh, sponsor schools through the Dave Ramsey um, school sponsor program to teach kids about finances. And, you know, it's an actual 90 hours of financial, um, 
uh, education and, and an investing course, not just, you know, some banker showing up to your kid's class for one hour with some prop and then never coming back. It's an actual 90 hour full course that the kids go nice. through. Nice. Very nice. So how can my listeners reach out to you? Yeah, just jump on my website, www.btblegal.com. Got, like I said, tons of informational content and you can email me brian at b-r-i-a-n at btblegal.com uh, you know don't feel worried i do free consultations i just like to educate people um it's worth the you know the great conversation just to get to know you and seeing what we can do for you thank you so much brian i learned a lot today no nah, thanks alpesh absolutely thanks for listening to the wealth matters podcast if you enjoyed it Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes so others can enjoy the show too. Have a great week and happy investing!